and welcome to Tea and Strumpets, a Regency Romance Review. I'm Zoe. And I'm Kelsey. And it is the end, but it is June, which is Pride Month. And so we knew that we wanted to do some episodes celebrating Pride. Last year we were were on it and we did four. (laughs) This year... Not quite as on it, but uh, hey, we're still in the pandemic, and gosh, time is so weird right now. It is, and you know, we're coming out of it, but everything's still a bit wild, and uh, I will say, I do love Pride Month because it's the most colorful month of the year, and I love seeing all those bright, happy colors. I completely agree. I, I love that, and I love celebrating things that I care about, and in honor of that, Today, we read The Vicar and the Rake by Annabelle Green. And actually, we had her second book in the series, which is called The Soldier and the Spy on our 2021 Most Anticipated Reads, because I saw Gay Male Regency. And I don't know if I realized then that there that, that was the second one in the series, but I thought when I went in to look that since there was a first book, I thought, well, let's start there. And so that's what we're talking about today. Yes, we are. And it was, uh, this is Annabelle Green's debut mm-hmm. book. And uh, I have to say, good debut. I agree. I'm really excited to get into to talking about it after our synopsis. But we do have a content warning in this book uh, of childhood physical abuse and the death of a mentor. Uh, The author includes that in the book, so I wanted to make sure we included it also in the podcast. So we do, since this is a new author for us, as well as for pretty much everyone else, we have some author facts for you this week. So Annabelle Green writes hot, heartwarming historical romances with plenty of humor. When she isn't crafting the perfect happily ever after, she's making pasta or walking along Italy's beautiful Adriatic coast. Lucky lady on the coast of Italy. That sounds like a great place to be in the pandemic, especially. I know. Wow. Sounds terrible. Gosh, why would anyone ever want to be there? (laughs) I imagine it's pretty inspirational. (laughs) for writing happily ever afters. I would agree with that. So today I have a history fact-ish. I kind of just wanted to take a moment to talk about an article that came out last year about the views of the common man on homosexuality in the Regency. And uh, I'm going to quote this article. It's from the BBC, and we're going to link to that in our show notes and on our blog. But but basically, they found a diary of a common person, um, a kind of a middle-class guy, and he had some thoughts that I'm going to quote and share here. So, Tomlinson had been prompted by what had been a big sex scandal of the day, in which a well-respected naval surgeon had been found to be engaging in homosexual acts. A court-martial had ordered him to be hanged, but Tomlinson seemed unconvinced by the decision, questioning whether what the papers called a, quote, a natural act was really that unnatural. Tomlinson argued, from a religious perspective, that punishing someone for how they were created was equivalent to saying that there was something wrong with the creator. Quote, it must seem strange indeed that God Almighty should make a being with such nature or such a defect in nature, and at the same time make a decree that if that being whom he had formed should at any time follow the dictates of that nature with which he was formed, he should be punished with death, he wrote on January 14th, 1810. 
If there was an inclination and propensity for someone to be homosexual from an early age, he wrote, quote, it must then be considered as natural, otherwise as a defect in nature, and if natural or a defect in nature, it seems cruel to punish that defect with death. The diarist makes reference to being informed by others that homosexuality is apparent from an early age, suggesting that Tomlinson and his social circle had been talking about this case and discussing something that was not unknown to them. But knowing what, quote, ordinary people really thought about such behavior is always difficult, not least because the loudest surviving voices are usually the wealthy and powerful. And I wanted to end the quoting of this article there just kind of as a reminder that, like, the that history is often being curated by the upper class people who lived it, the people with power and money, a lot of the time influenced by religion, etc. So we don't necessarily always get the views of the actual kind of masses. And so this is a really interesting look into thoughts and feelings of the middle class. And it does kind of connect to a little thing that happens in our book towards the end, kind of our happily ever after. And so I just wanted to bring it up. I think that's great. And I really like that view of having that kind of historical record because, you know, it's very interesting having drifted out and done some books like Sherry Thomas's books and things they talk about how, especially in China, it was like, oh, that was just known and accepted Mm -hmm. versus in the Western ideals. Again, it was like professed to be so wrong, but what did actual people think about it? Because just like we talk about marriage being so important, but the actual marriage we've talked about wasn't actually decreed until so long. A lot of people are just considered married once they lived together for so long. Yeah. And I think it's also important to remember that there are people who still believe it's wrong today. Yeah. And there are thankfully a lot of people who don't feel that way <laughs> today. Agreed. And I think that in general, just acceptance of everyone for who they are. It's just the most powerful thing. And I think this book does a good job talking about that. I agree. We've also got a lot of tropes in this book. So Mm -hmm. uh, our main tropes are the virgin and the rake. (laughs) We've had that trope as a trope. And like, it's literally the name of the book, the vicar and the rake. Okay, sorry. But yeah, (laughs) a few a few letters different. We've also got a mystery is afoot. Mm-hmm. Um, we also have one of my favorites. Oh no, I've fallen terribly ill and simply cannot be moved from this place for fear of my delicate health, <laughs> which is also known as forced proximity. Yeah. And then we've got childhood friends to lovers. Mm-hmm. And last but not least, we've got like the scrappy child, the vagabond, vagrant child sidekick kind of. Which is great. I always love when they just adopt a stray child. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. So we got one of those. All right. Our main characters are the Reverend Sir Gabriel Winters and Edward Stanhope, the Duke of Cadenfell. All right, Kelsey, shall we get into our synopsis? We shall. We begin our tale at death's door, or at least that's where Reverend Gabriel Winters believes he is. After a normal day of visiting and helping his parishioners, pushing himself as hard as he always did, which was quite, quite hard, and probably not stopping for adequate nourishment, Gabriel found himself fainting into the flower beds at Hardcoat House. A fever had gone through the town recently, and he had been at the sick beds, of course, as was his duty. And finally, it seems, it's caught up with him. 
Gabriel made it a habit to make his way home every day with a trip through the grounds of Hardcote, the country seat of his childhood friend Edward, the current reprobate Duke of Cadenfell. Edward had left when he had reached his majority, and since then all Gabriel had heard of his friend was what the scandal sheets said, and that was quite scandalous indeed. But he loved the beautiful estate, and so he looked in on the gardens and helped the skeleton staff on occasion to keep it pristine. As luck would have it, though, on the day that fever beset him, the Duke of Cadenfell was finally back at Hardcote. With a huge scandal in his wake, he had fled somewhere to hide, and his brother Maurice had suggested Hardcote, as it was somewhere he never went. It was the perfect place to lay low while Maurice figured out the right people to blackmail this time to get his brother out of trouble. So Edward and his manservant Bryce arrived to their hideout, only to find it a bit occupied by the limp Gabriel and a loud kitten. Against Bryce's protestations, Edward finds he does not want to leave either of them out in the elements to die, and so the party of two becomes a party of four. Edward Stanhope, the Duke of Cadenfell, was known as scandal itself. Quote, the head of a society, or so it was whispered, where only men who shared his predilections were to be admitted. The terror of every mother in the ton, not for their daughters, but for their sons. The most infamous sodomite in London, certainly most untouchable one, with an enormous fortune and a brother so well connected he could blackmail a saint. The Duke of Cadenfell, for all his depravity, enjoyed a level of protection that Gabriel found incomprehensible, incomprehensible and deeply irritating. He and Gabriel had parted ways at his majority, and he had gone on to the aforementioned while Gabriel thought, quote, How utterly unfair, Edward living a shameless life. Upon discovering desires like his, a man was meant to banish them by marriage, if at all possible. Or by, say, living the harsh life of a country vicar in a parish teetering on the edge of complete chaos. But now Edward had to flee. This latest indiscretion was harder to clean up. Quote, Hide. That was the part that had him seeing nooses in every shadow. He had never, no matter how large the indiscretion, been advised to hide by anyone. Hiding was simply not in his nature. Until now. A man could hang for what he'd done. For what he was. And looking back at the faceless, nameless, essentially pleasureless encounter with Sussex's son, Edward realized that his neck could snap for something worthless. Worthless. Yes, that described it. Described him. He couldn't remember what worthy felt like. So Edward cares for Gabriel while he's in the throes of his fever. Gabriel is quite out of it, but realizes who his caretaker is. Quote, Gabriel's normally rigid mastery of his own body was impossible, racked as he was by fever, and Edward's face, complete with sculpted cheekbones and ice-blue eyes that glittered with cynical, reckless mischief, was designed to undo the strongest of men. God, he ached for him, ached to do things he couldn't name and couldn't dare to imagine. The fever burned away years of denial as he watched Edward pace and mutter. Desire flooded him, as pleasurable as the illness was painful, working in tandem to tingle and swell and stiffen him in ways that would have been unbearable in perfect health, let alone in his current condition. And before Gabriel loses consciousness, and after Edward pleads with him to not die, he summons up the strength to pull Edward's face to his for a searing kiss. The man's tongue touched lightly against his own, once, twice. On the third time, Edward moaned again, helpless as lust overtook surprise. Yes, this was kissing. A thirsty, needful exchange of something much more precious than breath. He does not die at this point. In fact, Gabriel wakes up the next morning tired and sore, but quite healthy for it turned out to be a normal fever and not the rheumatic one that had been plaguing the village. 
and though he knows he should return to his duties, he feels so drawn to Edward that he is reluctant to leave, and when he learns that the Duke of Sussex is out for revenge against Edward, he simply can't abandon him to that fate without trying to help. This puts our heroes in close proximity to get to know each other once more. There is a lot of will-they-won't-they as their natures are revealed slowly. Gabriel is a stoic, steadfast, loyal character. He made a pact with God that it was okay for him to be what he was and feel what he did as long as he worked for God and never acted on it. Edward is cynical and showy, with a cold and often cruel exterior. Of course, this protects a warm, gooey interior, but we don't see that emerge until much later. As most who exude that frost... His self-confidence and self-worth are in the gutter, but luckily our insightful Gabriel sees that quite quickly. They are soon joined by Edward's brother Maurice, who is unhappy with the entire situation as he can't find anything to blackmail Sussex with. And Sussex is quite literally out to kill Edward, and because Gabriel in the house is a wrinkle of no one knowing where they are. And with the arrival of Gabriel's widowed sister, Lady Ploverdale, we basically have ourselves a house party. However, both Lady Ploverdale and Gabriel have this sense of righteousness and the desire to help their childhood friends out of this scrape. So they insist on staying, even as Lady P and Maurice both see the tension between Gabriel and Edward and warn the pair to stay away from each other for their own goods. They are right, as Gabriel has slightly more of a reason to stay. Quote, he had known he would stay as soon as Maurice mentioned Edward's life being in danger. Edward living in London, Edward living in luxury, Edward living in other men's beds, all of those were conceivable. Edward, being dead, was not. Keeping them apart, of course, does not work. Although Lady P and the Fates do a pretty good job keeping them from being alone. However, the pull between the men is too strong, and we have a few stolen kisses. Finally, a few small pieces fall into place, and our merry players realize that there is something to follow from them. It appears that Sussex did not have a diamond necklace stolen, but rather had it broken down at a certain jeweler's, and his accomplice seems to be one of Edward's closest associates and one of the founders of his exclusive club, the Society of Beasts. This necessitates a trip to London to search the club's records. Edward and Gabriel are chosen to go, as Gabriel's face isn't known in London, and Edward is needed because he knows where to look. They disguise Edward and also send along Ginger, the plucky vagrant child who has stumbled into their party and has been hired on for menial tasks. But Edward would never be suspected to be in the company of a child, so bringing Ginger is the perfect decoy. The mission in London goes awry. They are discovered at the headquarters of the Society of Beasts and pursued all the way back to Hardcoat by Edward's friends and co-founders. So now we really have a house party. <laughs> Maurice is furious because he believes that one of the founders is an accomplice for Sussex's one indiscretion. However, now the three are here, and so they're told about the whole thing. They, of course, all deny any association and agree to try to help Edward. Meanwhile, Edward and Gabriel are still having their pas de deux, drawn to each other passionately, but... Edward pushing away because he fears the intensity of the connection. He knows that if things really happen with Gabriel, it will not be like any relationship he's had prior. He'll have to share some of the childhood traumas and abuse at the hands of his father as he bears the marks of that on his body. And throughout their dance, there are moments where they get close, only to have Edward push back coldly. However, in a refreshing twist, our virginal yet assertive Gabriel doesn't let Edward get away with that behavior. Rather, there are moments like, quote, Edward shivered. God, this was dangerous. So foolish and so tempting that he burned with the desire to touch him, tease him, please him. Don't push me too far. I'm warning you. 
Gabriel's voice was a patient and unwelcome aphrodisiac, warning me, I see. Well then. A moment of silence passed. Edward stood fixed, waiting, overcome with the nearness of Gabriel's body. Finally, the silence was more than he could bear. Well then what? Well then, Gabriel sounded almost frustrated. Stop me. <laughs> and when the idea of commitment is floated between them, quote, forgive me. Gabriel's voice made his heart sink. There was that edge of bitterness again, the one he'd heard during the first, their first conversation after years of estrangement. I know a thousand inexperienced men like me will have said something similar to you in one way or another, so I imagine the glib response you're searching for is no more than a breath away. Any desire to tell Gabriel anything vanished. For a priest, the man really knew how to be a bastard. How dare he assume that his silence, his reticence, was due to a lack of interest, even though, really, everything about his London reputation would suggest exactly that. No, Edward wouldn't consider that. He would lash out every time rather than accept Gabriel could have a point. He turned, looking Gabriel straight in the eye, summoning up every ounce of Stanhope cruelty. Of course you're free to leave. I don't keep my fencing saber with me after an hour spent fencing. One releases the tension, and then one behaves as one wishes. He waited, holding his breath for Gabriel to rear back, to storm out of the room, to find the nearest carriage and never return, to insult him, to throw something, to cry. Instead, to his immense shock, Gabriel smiled. He chuckled. On the day we met again, I would have believed you. I really would. And I would have raged and stormed about, and possibly wept, and left. Perhaps I would have sent you a spiteful letter some days later, which you, of course, would not have read, just as you never read any of the others, and that would have been the end of the matter. He looked down, briefly examining his nails. But this is not the day we met, and I have given up so much of who I believed I was to share these snatched moments, and I have seen you give up more of yourself than you think. Reveal more. Edward waited, silent, scared. Revealing anything about himself only put people in danger. Couldn't Gabriel see it? The exact situation they found themselves in was due to his own greed, his need to reveal his hunger for closeness, for connection. I have known you longer than you have known yourself, Edward, and I know you are lying. I don't believe it. I know it. You need me here, and you like me being here, and soon you are going to tell me why you so desperately try to deny that fact. Gabriel's smile faded. The vulnerable look appeared the one that made Edward want to reach out and run away at the same time. And it does need to be soon. Not today, but soon. Of course, soon comes soon enough, and though Edward resists at first, he does show Gabriel his scars, both inside and out. Quote, You wanted the truth, all of it, and by God you'll have it. Edward's voice shook. He paused, gritting his teeth before continuing. Do you know how hard it is to be carefree and cold and dancing from person to person like some sort of idiot creature, laughing all the while? Oh, I could mope and glower all day like Maurice, but I know I'm nowhere near clever enough to attract people to my darkness. So I'm always light, and I am exhausted. This idea you have of me, the carefree bastard, it's true. I am a bastard, a complete bastard, but I'm certainly not carefree. And if you keep caring, I... He stopped again, sure that he would weep, trying desperately not to do so. I will have to be more of a bastard than ever, because no one, no one at all, deserves to be close to someone as grotesque as I am inside. And after some more words and some more heartfelt actions, the two couple again. By this time, we've had three encounters previously, but this one is different because there are real feelings that have been expressed. Of course, it is complicated. Quote, 
I have already broken my vow. Gabriel knew this to be true. What he had done with Edward meant a breaking of the promise he had made to God. But standing entwined in Edward's arms now, feeling the scars on his back, he finally saw that the promise he had made was empty from the beginning. One could not choose whom one loved. One could not refuse the work of love, the work of loving. And if the man he loved came to him, showed him the wounds of a past that Gabriel had never truly understood, and told him that those wounds made him unlovable— No promise, not even one made to God himself, would keep him from showing Edward exactly how wrong he was. However, our story is not yet over. There's a dastardly plan to foil, and our lovers haven't really had to overcome a major tribulation yet. (laughs) And so, as Maurice continues to try to figure out who the mole is, Edward does some soul-searching. Though he feels he is unlovable, a conversation with one of the other founders helps him find his way. Quote, Not all of us are born knowing how to love. He looked at his friend, half afraid that the man would mock its earnestness. If the sentiment is not nourished in childhood, it flowers with difficulty when a man is in the prime of one's life. He stopped gathering himself. But love, as I have seen it practiced, does not require one to be an expert practitioner when one begins. One learns as one goes. It is one of the only states where the broken can function as well as the whole. But right when Edward is about to express his love to Gabriel, they are interrupted because Maurice is apprehending the culprit. He's figured out which one of the founders has been conspiring with Sussex, or so he believes. Of course, he's actually chosen the wrong man, though we don't know this yet, and Hartley rages back against the accusations, lashing out and telling Gabriel some of the callous things that Edward had said about him earlier, out of context. Of course, Edward had been saying them for sport and to try to mask his true feelings of love from his friend, not ready at first to be that vulnerable. And surprisingly, Gabriel kind of sees this, but is still extremely hurt. He runs, though Edward catches him. And after some heated words, the most important words are spoken. Quote, I love you, you damned fool. He spoke slowly. Gabriel shut his eyes tightly, turning away. I love you and it burns. Of course I'm not going to tell Hartley about it. There is agony in it, the sweetest, most glorious agony, and I live every moment of every day drunk with it, mad with it. And my God, it doesn't lessen. It only grows and deepens and gives life to things I thought were dead. It makes me better and stronger and more grateful than anything I have ever possessed or encountered or begged for or stolen or made. And it will never die. This is faith. This is the only faith I've ever had that I could feel. His voice altered. Gabriel could hear the tears in it. And and I thought it would mend me, Gabriel, and it did not. Gabriel turned back. He forced himself to look into Edward's eyes, gathering his thoughts, steadying himself. I thought it would too, he sighed. I thought it would. I hoped it would. But I am tired. The words came from his very core. Tired of fighting. Tired of of waiting. Just tired. Come back to the house. Come back to me. Edward moved to take his arm. Gabriel shrugged him away. We're in danger out here. I know. Gabriel turned away, forcing himself to start walking. But I'm more in danger with you. And so the two part ways for now, Gabriel going home to his own house, where, as luck would have it, Ginger, the vagabond child, is there to help wrap up the mystery. His mother has been brutally attacked, and with her dying breath, she admits that Ginger is actually Arthur, a bastard child of the Duke of Sussex. She also has the necklace and love letters between them, which they uncover and use later to force the Duke to agree to stop coming after Edward. The Duke does agree, but reconciliation between our heroes still seems far away. 
However, the evening after the Duke has agreed to let Edward go, Hardcote House goes up in flames. For the true accomplice to Sussex is one of the other beasts, Lambert, and he's in cahoots to burn the house down with all of them and the evidence in it. Lambert, though, is a bit bloodthirsty and wants to make sure Edward is dead by his own hand before the house is consumed, so we get a bit of a villain dialogue with reasons, though they're a touch vague. However, Gabriel has seen the fire and is coming to the rescue. He runs through the house trying to find everyone and bring them out and succeeds, mostly, even finding Hartley, who angrily leaves without a word. There's definitely some groveling that will need to be done to repair that friendship. Lambert is not rescued. For all appearances, he seems to be dead. But you know how these things go when there isn't a body for sure. (laughs) We'll have to see how that plays out in the series. But Gabriel does get to save his love, who was fighting back against Lambert when he arrived. But the evidence against Sussex is gone, and so Edward isn't safe again. Or is it? Because we find out from Ginger that he actually filched it previously due to something fabulous Maurice had told him, in which Zoe will share as her favorite quote. It's a good quote. (laughs) And so Maurice sets about absolutely ruining the Duke of Sussex as soon as he is able. And there's nothing like the threat of the person you love dying to bring people together. Our heroes reunite after a few words together, and things seem set for a happily ever after. Quote, And the hardworking vicar, Gabriel Winters, recovered from the fever that had almost killed him, would be moving into the old gamekeeper's cottage in the depths of Hardcote Woods. How nice, the villagers said to one another, remembering Gabriel as a boy, and how like old Mr. Welton, who had been so respected. How monkish it seemed, as if Hardcote had its very own hermit, as it had in the good old days. A real touch of grace for any village, and something to talk to the neighbors about. And if they wondered about the sudden appearance of the infamous Duke of Cadenfell and his apparent intention to stay in Hardcote House, so close to Gabriel's new living quarters, well, they remembered the times Gabriel had nursed their children through fever, or brought them firewood in the winter, or buried their dead with the tender respect of a man who knew true sorrow. Somehow, none of their questions ever reached their lips. Earlier in our story, when Edward and Gabriel had been chatting, Gabriel had mentioned that all he really wanted was a party. A party where he didn't have to baptize or perform funeral rites, just somewhere he could enjoy himself. So, of course, we have to have a party before the story can conclude. And what a party it is. In the slightly singed library, Edward makes his proposal. Quote, You might even think it's blasphemous. I don't think it is, and I doubt you do. But who knows? I was an idiot. Edward put his hand into his waistcoat. When he withdrew it, Gabriel saw he was holding something small. But tell me, he opened his palm. Gabriel looked at the rings. They were small and thin of well-beaten gold and a tiny whisper-thin gap in each bright circle. Broken. Edward's voice trembled. Broken, but whole. In Gabriel's head, the question mark vanished. Wedding. You have to say the words, Reverend. You're the only one ordained if we're keeping to any formalities at all here. Frank's boisterous voice broke through the portentous atmosphere. I was meant to mark the page, but buggered if I could find it. It's quite all right, Gabriel swallowed. I know them by heart. And surrounded by their family and closest friends, they are married. The end. Aww. Oh my gosh. We're sitting here smiling at each other. We really are. (laughs) So we need to adjourn to the parlor so we can come back and talk about this. So shall we adjourn? We shall. 
So today, I could not be more excited to tell you guys all about an in-person event. <laughs> Woohoo! And the even better thing about this in-person event is it's not until 2022. So it's like in the future, but not too far in the future. And it feels exciting and safe. And it's also in my backyard. So what I am talking about is the historical romance retreat of 2022, which is going to be in San Diego, California. Woohoo! Because that's right where Zoe is. I was going to say her backyard, but it's actually like her whole house. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's my city. I'm so excited. Obviously, we're going to be there in some capacity. We're figuring that all out. But regardless, we are so excited to share this event with you guys. If you are a fan of historical romance, which I think you are because you're listening to this podcast, this is literally the event made for you. So I'll read you a little bit about how Historical Romance Retreat talks about themselves. So in a magical historical hotel setting at the Westgate Hotel in San Diego, California, this multi-day retreat is a book lover's dream come true. Join some of the world's most celebrated authors of historical romance coming together for an intimate gathering that gives every guest a chance to mingle and play. Come as you are or dress in your favorite era, enjoy historical foods, games, and music while surrounded by the glamour of a hotel that was once enjoyed by the elite. So this retreat is really fun. I was um, just actually perusing the calendar. Oh my God, guys, <laughs> it's so much fun. Okay. First, we have the HRR Emporium, which just sounds like a great shopping experience. And then you have a welcome gathering. There's presentations and workshops. There's afternoon tea. And uh -huh. then each night, there's like a different themed party. And <laughs> then there's the grand ball on the Saturday, as well as a farewell breakfast. And there's also the great book exhibition, which is open to the public, which is also really great. But the whole point of this whole amazing weekend is, and all these activities, is you don't just do them with the participants. You also do them with the authors that'll be helping running these workshops as well as, you know, mingling with the guests. And some of the authors there are notable names that we've talked about on the podcast or spoken with on the podcast. We have podcast favorite Jennifer Ashley, Kerrigan Byrne, Tessa Ooh. Dare, Sabrina Jeffries, and as well as a host of all the other names that some will recognize, some won't. It's going to be a great time is what it looks like. Yeah, there are so many authors already committed. And I'm sure between now and next year, there's going to be even more. And I'm just scrolling the names right now. And like, there's even more than what, you know, Kelsey said that I recognize. And like she said, there are some you don't recognize, and the best part about that is now there's going to be more authors and more books for you to read and discover. So I have a little bit of a personal experience with Historical Romance Retreat. When we were starting this podcast, when we were like in the planning stages, I saw that Historical Romance Retreat was having their retreat, and it was only like a two-hour drive from where I lived. And so I thought, okay, I'll go up to the Great Book Fair exhibition, which was open to the public as it always is. And that is where I first got to meet Tessa Dare and Kerrigan Byrne. 
and Kerrigan and I like hit it off and had a like nice conversation. And she mentioned that she was going to be in San Diego like two days later. And we went out to breakfast. I mean, like, guys, it was like <laughs> all my dreams come true. It was and we had such a great time. We talked about The Bachelor. And like, all I'm saying is that I was so envious that I didn't know about it beforehand. And I didn't go to the whole thing. So here's the deal. You know about it beforehand now. <laughs> you have yes. so much time. And Tickets are on sale now. Registration is open. They are limiting registration to only 325 people so that it is an intimate event. And the price is a little bit steep. But again, right, we've been home for a year. You know, if you've been saving your vacation pennies, this is kind of the perfect event to put it towards. And if you can't afford the registration fee, then luckily you can do what I did and just come for the great exhibition and book fair. Now, one thing we haven't mentioned is the actual dates. <laughs> We've said yes. 2022, but this is from September 28th to October 2nd, 2022. And the Great Book Exhibition, which is like a book signing historical fair, and that's what I went to, it's open to the public, and that's on October 1st from 1 to 4 p.m. So if you're anywhere in the Southern California region, make a day of it. Come to San Diego for the day. Go to the book fair. Go out to lunch. There's so many great things here. If you need suggestions, hit me up. I will I will definitely offer them to you. And the great book sign, the great book exhibition is a chance to purchase books and have them signed and chat with your favorite authors. <laughs> There's lots of free goodies and fun. I swear. I was like grinning from ear to ear there. I made so many friends and connections. I was just chatting with people in line. Like I haven't chatted with people in line in over a year. So like I am really excited for this event. (laughs) Yes. uh, This event sounds so much fun. And uh, I just love that this exists. And, you know, it's pretty spectacular. Not going to (laughs) lie. I can't agree more. So we are going to be talking about this event a lot more than just today. So we'll give you little snippets of some of the events that are going to be happening within the event. But if you want to learn more and register, just head on over to bit.ly slash HRR2022 to register today. And of course, we will have that link in the show notes. Amazing. Before we finish the parlor today, we also wanted to share with you a new book. Yes, and today we're talking about Undercover Duke by Sabrina Jeffries, which is the latest book in the Duke Dynasty series. So for those of you who don't know, this series follows a family that actually has three Dukes in the family, as well as a non-Duke youngest son and a twin sister, who is mm-hmm. obviously not a Duke. <laughs> and so it's it's really fun. It's a very Bridgerton-esque style family, although there's a bit of family estrangement. And most of them are all half-siblings, like you're a couple whole siblings, but half-siblings. And it just so happened that this uh, wonderful lady with all her children, she married a duke and he died shortly after her son was born. And then her next marriage, the duke died before she even like finished having her kid. 
And then her last one was her longest marriage. And then it just so happened that her husband later inherited a dukedom, which is what brings the family back. Because other than that, they were off being ambassadors. They were doing like British diplomatic work in Germany. So this brings us to our book, which is following Sheridan Wolf, the Duke of Armitage. And there's also a good family mystery in there. But Zoe, why don't you tell everyone what's going on in this book? Yes, we love to give you the whole synopsis. So, along with his step-siblings, Sheridan Wolfe, Duke of Armitage, is determined to finally solve the mysteries behind the suspicious deaths of their mother's three husbands. Tasked with investigating a possible suspect, Sheridan finds himself in a dangerous proximity to her captivating daughter, Vanessa Pride. But still haunted by a tragically lost love, the Duke is resolved to resist the attraction and avoid any scheming husband hunters. Besides, lovely Miss Pride seems utterly smitten with a roguish London playwright. Vanessa thinks a little scheming may be in order, for it's Sheridan she truly has her sights and her heart set on. Her theatrical flirtation is intended only to break through his businesslike demeanor and guarded emotions, and as Sheridan's jealousy becomes aroused, the two soon find themselves propelled into a scheme of an altogether different kind, involving a pretend engagement, a secret inquiry, and a perhaps not-so-secret leap into true love. Aw, and I cannot... I cannot believe this, but I've definitely read some Duke Dynasty books. Like, I, this is so familiar. I know this this mother with the three Duke sons, and I'm just like, which one did I read? I, why? It's like so right there in the front of my brain. And so now, obviously, I've got to get ready. I know you've read Undercover Duke already. I have read Undercover Duke. I have read all the other ones. Ugh. And they are all really great. They're all really lovely. I love all the siblings. And so this is really fun because – uh, Vanessa Pride is actually the cousin of the of one yes. of the other dudes. Yes. Okay. This is so, all coming back to me. I have read one of these books. Yes. I'm, okay. There's anyhow. a couple of other cousins marrying the siblings, moving around. There's a couple different moving parts there, um, and it's all quite fun. And um, but the there thing is that getting a, me is like. I obviously didn't mark it on my Goodreads. So like, no, what well, even did I do? Did I finish it? I must have finished it. You must have. I wonder if you read the one about Gwen, the sister, because nope. she – Oh, because nope. it has a beautiful cover. It's like she's Ooh. in a beautiful yellow dress and she has this <gasps> bow and arrow. So, oh, yeah. I remember mm-hmm. that one coming out too. Okay. Well, yay. I have lots more books to read. Yeah. This – this. Um, if you're a fan of Sabrina Jeffries, you're going to really enjoy this series. And if you just didn't realize that the last book had come out, it has. It's really fun. Um, I read it. The mystery is definitely like comes full circle and it is not at all what you are expecting. It's Ooh. pretty bonkers. So get ready for that one. I'm so excited. I definitely am going to get going on that and figure out which one I have read. Because, yeah, luckily, ebooks. It's on my nook. <laughs> exactly. There you go. You can find it, Zoe. You can find it. All right. So now we're back to talk about the vicar and the rake. Ah, uh, the vicar and the rake. Kelsey, what do you think about this book? I thought this book was absolutely adorable. Like, I agree. 
it really was. It started out really fast-paced, guys. I mean, like, literally the opening lines are Gabriel Gabriel feeling his impending fever and his weakness. It's very exciting stuff because basically you, like, sense his reaction. He's like, oh, God, what is happening to me? Uh, blah, 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 blah. And then he literally falls down in the rose bushes. And then, of course, immediately Edward shows up and his manservant Bryce is really great and, like, grumpy and fabulous. Mm-hmm. And... Also, as we know, my favorite thing is when people have conversations with each other. Mm-hmm. And even though there's a bit of like pushing away and like, will they, won't they? The thing is, they always end up having a conversation with each other. And then eventually yes. Gabriel really understands that Edward's just like the lion with a thorn in his paw. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and... I'm going to throw this out, Zoe. Did you find yeah. it really interesting that the Society of Beasts was very Hogwarty? Oh, I didn't think about that. I'm surprised you did it. They each have animals that represent them, and there's four of yeah. them. And I was like, ooh, how very Hogwarty. <laughs> yeah, it 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 kind of is. It's I think because we don't get a lot of kind of we don't get anything of the interior of the Mm. society of beasts in fact we get like the four founders together but then like one of them turns out to be a traitor and we barely got anything about that character beforehand so so we don't know them that well however uh i have read most of the second book and you get a lot more about the society of beasts well i was gonna say i just read the synopsis of the second book and it basically Mm -hmm. takes place like inside the society of beasts from what i could Mm -hmm. glean from a very quick read of the synopsis so yes um i got i gathered that but yeah it was really funny when they were like oh yes the stoat and the wolf and the lion and the bear and i was like oh like Hogwarts. <laughs> yeah. I no, and I, I really liked that. And I was I liked the whole society aspect, but it's interesting because like I said, that that didn't have a lot to do with our book, because our book is like kind of, you know, a short period of time with a serious problem and forced proximity. Like, so these guys have to kind of like, yes, they have that will they won't they back and forth a lot, but then when you kind of step back, you realize also all the things you said, but then also like not a lot of time has passed. So they're actually no. doing a pretty decent job. There's like a few weeks, I think, mm-hmm. is the timeline of this book. So they're doing a pretty decent job of passion and communication um, for the most part, I think, in this book. Yeah, and absolutely. And I think it's really it's really important to bring up that they, they did have a very close – they were very close when they were young. Yes. And so it's it was very interesting to see that play out. Um, typically, when you get that situation, especially with Edward having the horrible father, you really – normally you would have seen that in kind of like the reminiscences that Gabriel had about their childhood. He probably could have mm-hmm. like – he kind of refers to like a darkness surrounding the house, but he had no idea of the extent versus yeah. I feel like if they were that close, they're probably he probably would have seen a bit of the extent. So you're saying you think that Gabriel should have seen it? You think that that was weak, that he didn't notice? I'm just saying what is typically in those situations. You typically someone that like once that is admitted, like the old childhood friend is like, oh, I see more clearly now what was happening all those years ago. You know, and they never really did talk about – they talked about a lot of things, but they never talked about what drove Edward away and not come back for 10 years. Like they never addressed that. Yeah. So I think this book was extremely strong for a debut. Like, oh, 100%. Extremely strong. Very the strong. The writing, the writing is like 
my catnip. There's like alliterations and metaphor and like beautiful sentences, like really like, and you, I mean, our listeners heard a lot of quotes because I had a little bit of a hard time writing the synopsis because this was kind of like two idiots that had to get out of their own way long enough to like Mm -hmm. fall in love, which, you know, kind of, we've, we've got some other authors who, who do that. Um, but then there was also like this, you know, mystery afoot that we had to do. And so I was like, but the, the to me, like the heart of the story was the characters that was Edward oh, yeah. and Gabriel mm-hmm. and the characterization of them. I thought the characterization and the dialogue was so strong. Oh, no, I think that, too. I think that the plot was kind of like the I mystery think- was almost superfluous at the end. Like I get you mm-hmm. needed a conflict and it kind of had been set up. But so much of it was so um, dialogue driven and like interaction driven. But yeah. even talking about like the side characters, you get um, Gabriel's sister and yep. Edward's brother and them kind of having a little like interaction. And it's so great because oh. Maurice is like Mr. Scary. Everyone in the town is scared of him. And Caroline immediately goes... Uh, I remember that time when you were 15 and she was like, oh, I know what it is, is he was complaining about her having a headache, her giving mm-hmm. him a headache because she'd been prattling because no one had talked at dinner. So she literally was like, I'm just going <laughs> to talk about nothing until someone says something because she's brilliant <laughs> like that. Yes. And he's just like, Maurice is like, oh, stop nattering, woman. Like, you're giving me a headache. She's like, I remember the last time you had a headache and you were 15, nose deep, and your father's French scandalous novel that you ran straight into a tree. their little their tension was so delicious like I loved Maurice and Caroline and I hated like not putting them in the synopsis but as I I think I didn't finish this thought but like I had a hard time writing the synopsis just because it was it was so character driven and so dialogue driven to me like the heart of the story so that's why I like went a little bit more that way and a little lighter on the other things because I felt like that was the the essence of this book like was Edward and Gabriel and kind of them explaining it's kind of setting up this world, right? That like yeah. this version of the Regency um, that Annabelle Green is writing with with these characters and how they live their lives. And also the characters just seemed like they had – they just had so much depth to me. So I, I agree. I think that all of them were – they all had a lot of depth and I really am intrigued to see how the story goes. And I, mm-hmm. I want to see what plays out in the future. I want to know if Ginger plays a role later on. I want to know if Maurice and Caroline pop up as like the two mm-hmm. like devious minds to help un- like untangle Edward's friends from mischief. Like I'm very or, curious. Yeah. Are Maurice and Caroline going to get married or are Maurice and Caroline going to have their own book or are they just going to pop up or will we never hear from them again? I know. Oh, Oh, it would be such a shame (laughs) if we never hear from them again. I know. (laughs) Well, like I said, I think this book was so strong on the writing, so strong in the characters, so strong in the the prose. I think everything like that was just like really swept me away. I think that the the book did suffer from some weak points and that really I think you're going to agree with me was the plot. The plot seemed a bit contrived. Like there were times when it when it felt just a little heavier than like not not that it was like heavy and like dark, but more that it was like it was dragging the love story down a little bit in moments. Yeah, well it was really interesting because I think it more just suffered from similar I think to how we talked about with Julianne Long's The Peril of Pleasure, how like there was so much going on to get to like the conclusion of like the big mystery. Yeah. And then when you get to the end of the big mystery, like in this case it was a bit of a letdown. 
Yeah. And it was not as strong as like it needed to be. Like it, I agree. it wasn't a big reveal. It was kind of like a, oh, and then in my head, I'm like, that doesn't seem like that big a deal. Well, and it was super con- – so so I was a little confused about the the plot of the mystery because uh, Edward was caught with Sussex's son. son. Mm-hmm. So then the when, the when we were learning about Ginger slash Arthur, which he was awfully convenient that he just happened to pop up and then happened to be the answer to the mystery, right? You know? Yeah. Um, again, a little bit of, of a weakness there, but, um, but uh, he – when we were learning about him and his mother was dying and with her dying breath, she was telling the story. She was saying, she said something, I think if my memory serves me properly, that like once the Duke's wife did her duty, that Arthur's dad, the Duke left and never came back. But it doesn't make sense because he already had an heir. He had many the heirs that were at close to Edward's age or older, which is significantly older than Ginger. So yeah. then I was just like, I was sitting there going like, wait, what? But again, like that part just like kind of didn't matter to me because I didn't, I didn't really care. Yeah, like, I, I didn't yeah. care as much. I was mm-hmm. like, okay, well, just get me back to the beautiful words that Edward and Gabriel say to each other. Yeah. Well, it also kind of like the whole Sussex's pursuit of Edward, like it didn't quite make sense because it was like they realized he was pursuing him for something he thought they knew, which they uh-huh. didn't know. And then when you found it out, it's like, it seems like an awful lot that they probably never would have figured out. Like, if you just done nothing, it never would have come to light and everything would have been fine. But again, you needed something to throw everyone together. So I don't know. You know what? Yeah. Again, it felt like there was a lot kind of going on in that plot. But after reading half of the second book, I feel like a lot of what we learned in the first book was kind of like the foundation for maybe the series. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I kind of can understand that as an author, you're like, well, this is what I've got. I need some of these things to 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 set up the rest of it. So I can't really like change too much of it. And yes, it's not like the perfect plot, but for a debut book, I think it's just like it's still like extremely strong. Yeah. And I'm just like we talked about with Sarah McLean's like first book, right? Uh, mm-hmm. the nine rules to break. We kind of said, well, the plot was like a little bit more like didn't wasn't as trim and strong as some of her later plots. And I I I can totally see the same thing being with with animals yeah. continued works a hundred percent and I think also world building especially for your uh, world building something like this for your first time where you're trying to set up a society and you're trying to do this because it was entitled the Society of Beasts and they had kind of like referenced it once at the beginning and then it wasn't talked about until the book was like again until about halfway through yeah and that's when they went but it was so interesting because I for a minute there while I was reading it I was like do we like is the society of beasts something separate like are we going to even meet any of the people in the society like (laughs) how is that going to play into the next books i don't know yeah it was it was interesting but i think then coming around at the end of the whole thing it made more sense. Like the whole yeah. thing made sense more at the end than sometimes when you're reading the individual pieces. So mm-hmm. overall, really positive. So let's get into our heroes. Let's talk first about Gabriel. Cause I think, and maybe you'll disagree, but I think he's a little bit more straightforward to, to yes, talk about. I think so too. I loved her handling of a gay vicar. I loved it. Oh, I loved it too. I love that his whole thing was like, 
I'm perfectly comfortable in my position as a man of God because like I just made a pact with God and I was, you know, I said, you created me this way. Like this is who I am. And like, I'll dedicate my light, my life in service of you and doing good works Mm -hmm. because like this is a sin, quote unquote, but he didn't really, he didn't feel like he himself was a sin. Like he was very much like content with who he was and understood that. And then we have that passage later where that we shared in the synopsis where he basically says like his pact was wrong and here Mm -hmm. are the reasons that it was wrong and it's wrong because it's not wrong to love someone, you know, and if if his his duty is to show someone that they're loved and lovable, then that is an act of God. And so I just – I really loved how she was able to really kind of put like – you know, a bow on it, basically, right? Mm -hmm. She made it feel like something special and like really made you feel like that thought process was whole, where sometimes like it can be a little bit weak and you're left going, but how did he come to terms with that? And instead she was like, this is exactly why. And this, I I just thought it was beautiful. Yes. No, I thought it really was. And I thought that he really did a good job of looking at things from a broad perspective. I love that when he could have like, even when he did at first get angry and walk away, like he was very much quick to reassess a situation and reassess Edward and like come to new conclusions. He wasn't stuck in that sense. That being said, I think that Gabriel wasn't quite as well-developed, just slightly less than Edward. I think there was okay. more to Edward in this book than Gabriel. Whether that's good or bad, I, yeah. I, you know, we haven't discussed that yet, but Gabriel knew who he was. Yeah, Gabriel knew who he was, and Edward was still kind of... Edward had Trying a lot to more growth out. to do. Yes. Edward had a lot more growth to do and mm-hmm. had been repressing, basically, the idea of growing as a human for 10 years. So yes. this was like a big wake-up call, but I think he was also tired of that life. He just didn't know it until he took a break from it. Oh, absolutely. So what would you rate Gabriel? I'll rate Gabriel. I'll rate him an eight only because of his ability to reassess a situation and talk about things. (laughs) I completely agree. I rate him an eight as well. I think he's well developed. I think there could be a little bit more to him. He's 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 a little one note. Mm -hmm. Although I forgot to say like when when he kind of – I shouldn't say that he's one note now that I'm remembering this part because <laughs> when they first like start, you know, having this sexual tension, Gabriel like turns around, even though he's virginal, like he starts to be like the more dominant yeah. one. Mm-hmm. And Edward I think has always kind of been the dominant one in a relationship because people are always chasing after him. So he actually starts to like that dynamic mm-hmm. and that is – I was just like, oh. Go, Gabriel. Get yeah, what you I want. I love it. He was just like, look, if I'm going to do it, we're going to do it. <laughs> yeah. And stop me. Oh, that stop me yeah. line really got got me. I was like, oh, old <laughs> fan. Uh, so, so then we have Edward, who mm-hmm. is just – I really liked Edward. He was hilarious to me because he's so callous and cold and mean and, like, flippant, but then also just, like – a little puppy dog, you know, once he starts to open up. And he doesn't take too long to open up. Mm -hmm. But he also kind of – I love that he says, like, I thought love would heal me, but it didn't. 
Yeah. Because again, love is just like one thing in our lives. Mm -hmm. And like to expect love to like fix all your problems is a bit of a fairy tale, which we all love. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think for love to help you work on your problems. Mm-hmm. is a little bit more realistic. And I think that's what Edward kind of realized. Yeah. And I think that's something that especially modern day readers are as modern day historical readers are gravitating towards. It's we yeah. don't want to see the per- we en- and especially you and I, we enjoy the books for like, you know, Evie and um, Sebastian, you know, mm-hmm. she stutters less due to him. Because of her comfort and because of the confidence he instills in her. But she still stutters. It doesn't yeah. go away completely, you know? And yeah. it's – or the stories of, you know, the deaf or blind hero who meets the heroine. And she doesn't just suddenly – like, his blindness and deafness don't just suddenly get cured, you know? No. There are real things that continue to be an obstacle in life, but – with the help of a supporting partner, that burden is lifted a little bit. Yeah, or PTSD or any of the other, you know, things that we read about. I love mm-hmm. seeing it when – and I, I loved how clear it was with Edward. You know, he obviously has issues. Like, I actually kind of wondered if maybe uh, the author was – modeling him after someone who has borderline personality disorder um because bpd like a lot of the nine symptoms of bpd fit edward not all of them so like they have a fear of abandonment um in fact like a famous book about bpd is called i hate you don't leave me Mm. and i kind of feel like that's the behavior that edward has right like he pushes people away but actually he doesn't want them to leave him because he mm-hmm. has this like really big sense of loneliness. Um, but also they have typically unstable relationships, unclear or shifting self-image. Boy, Edward has a really hard time with his self-image, right? Mm-hmm. Like he's 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 damaged from his abuse and from his trauma. His father was really, really abusive. Yeah. Um, impulsive, self-destructive behaviors. Yes, Edward. 100%. Self-harm. Now, Edward doesn't do, like, physical self-harm, but I think that his kind of, like, his carefree attitude about his life by, you know, living in a society that would hang him for doing what he does and doing it so blatantly, like almost he's asking for it. Mm-hmm. I feel like that that is is a little bit of that self-harm. Emotional, extreme emotional swings. Like oh, yeah. We've seen that with Edward. Um, chronic feelings of emptiness. That's kind of how Edward seems at, at times. Explosive anger. Eh, maybe not so much that one. Um, feeling suspicious or out of touch with reality is the last one. And, you know, maybe that one doesn't apply to him. But so many of the others kind of like jumped out at me that I wondered if she actually was kind of modeling that or if that just happened to be the case with him. Regardless, I found him fascinating. I really liked him. And I liked his arc. What about you? Um, I really did like him too. And I did like his arc. I liked that he was... You know, he his brother was kind of his problem solver, but Mm -hmm. it wasn't a relationship where, you know, he felt beholden to his brother or Mm -hmm. he felt like it was his brother's duty to, like, clean up after him. It was like his brother always did come and, like, fix the problem, Mm -hmm. but Edward still never expected it of his brother. Well, and he he comes back at one point and basically tells his brother that 
he's been an ass for relying on that in his life and that Mm -hmm. his brother should get to be as carefree as he is occasionally because his brother feels like he can't be because Edward is the one who's always causing trouble. Mm -hmm. And so they have this kind of moment together. So like, I I thought that that was important too. Yeah. But I liked that, you know, but I think you I know, obviously, like, judge a man by how he treats his family, you know, in that sort of sense. And I think that overall, like, they did have a good brotherly connection there. I thought it was a good relationship. You know, was it the perfect relationship? No, but I think it's because the brothers were just so different in that respect and always had been. But I like that they did have that sense of shared trauma that, you know, bound them together. Yeah. I'm also just realizing how young these guys are. Like, Edward left when he was 18. It's been 10 years. They're 28. Like, he's 28 years old. Yeah. And then Maurice is younger than that, and yet he's the most powerful man in London, essentially. And he's not even the Duke. He's just the Duke's younger brother. Yeah, they are young, powerful, rich, white men. But Mm -hmm. some of them are gay. And (laughs) Yeah, well, you know. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So I really liked Edward. I think I've said it before. I'm going to rate him a nine. I thought he was a character that just exploded off the page. And I loved that about him. Mm -hmm. I loved his arc. I loved a lot of the things that he said. Um, I found him to just be so fascinating to read about. Um, I don't think I was like in love with him where like Mm -hmm. a lot of the time I'm in love with uh, characters. I'm totally in love with the two characters from the two heroes from the second book like oh my god I love them so much (laughs) (laughs) but um I just think he to me he deserves a nine what about you uh I'm gonna say an eight solid solid I mean I think he's solid I thought both characters are solid I thought they were super solid together and I really liked both of their arcs and the understanding and the depth that kind of went with them and mm-hmm. I did think Edward overcame some demons. I don't think he's a nine for me, but I would say he's very solid. Fair enough. Now, do you have a favorite quote? You read it earlier. I'm just going to read it again. You should, because the writing is so beautiful. I want to hear it. It is so beautiful. <laughs> this is Edward's love confession. I love you, you damned fool. He spoke slowly. Gabriel shut his eyes tightly, turning away. I love you and it burns. Of course, I'm not going to tell Hartley about it. There's an agony in it, the sweetness, most glor- the sweetest, most glorious agony, and I live every moment of every day drunk with it, mad with it. And my God, it doesn't lessen. It only grows and deepens and gives life to things I thought were dead. It makes me better and stronger and more grateful than anything I have ever possessed or encountered or begged for or stolen or made. And it will never die. This is faith. This is the only faith I've ever had that I could feel. His voice altered. Gabriel could hear the tears in it. And and I thought it would mend me, Gabriel, and it did not. Oh. It's so pivotal and it's so poignant and I just... Like you said earlier, it's just that last line, I thought it would mend me, but it did not. It's like heartbreaking as well as like your heart is swelling and then it is just And breaking for it, yeah. But perfect at the same time. Mm -hmm. So... So bravo. So I said in the synopsis that I was going to read the quote that Maurice says to Ginger. So Maurice basically tells Ginger to to steal. 
And Mm -hmm. I really love this exchange between the two of them. I like the writing and uh, the the humor and the kind of the emotions that play out. So here we go. Let me ask you something. Maurice held the child's fist lightly in his own. The lady and the gentleman you have just met, they are good people. Some of them foolish on occasion, but good. Now, do you think I am good? Ginger shook his head. He tried to twist away, but Maurice tightened his fist just enough to still his hand. Well done. That means you're intelligent. It is a rare quality in adults, let alone children. And because you are intelligent, I know that you will listen extremely carefully to what I am going to say next. He lowered his voice. Ginger watched him, unblinking, waiting. Steal everything that you know should belong to you. Food, water, clothes, warmth, sun and shoes, and all the plum pudding at Christmas you can. Marie smiled. Life is cruel. It will not give you these things. You have to take them. Anything you need in this house that you know should belong to you by right, take it. I will not stop you. Maurice drew the boy closer. But only the things that should belong to you, that are precious to you and you alone. Now, is that string of beads precious to you and you alone? And with that, the child gives back the beads that he stole from Lady Ploverdale. But mm-hmm. And then, of course, later... He steals the um, letters from his mother to his father and ends up saving the evidence. Yes. But I just loved that whole lesson right there. I thought that was so great. I thought it was so great. And it was such a moment. And then, of course, like you see these little tender moments from Maurice where he like after that conversation and the boy goes to put the beads back, he like opens it. He like picks the lock of a cabinet that has like childhood clothes in it, including like shoes. And then like the next time we see Ginger, he's suspiciously wearing a pair of worn but newer shoes than he had before (laughs) yeah yeah and there's also a really wonderful long quote that i didn't include and i'm not going to read here where caroline um lady ploverdale basically warns edward away from her brother so Mm -hmm. we, we didn't talk about that but both maurice and lady ploverdale know that their brothers are gay Mm -hmm. and they're okay with it. Although uh, Gabriel comes out to his sister basically in this book and she's like, yeah. I've, like, she's like, yeah, think- I knew. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I knew. Duh. Um, and uh, but she she has this like really impassioned sisterly warning, warning mm-hmm. Gabriel away. She was like, basically, it's like my husband died of natural circumstances. You know this, right? She's like, if you hurt my brother – you will not die of natural circumstances. Yeah. <laughs> I just really loved that. No, I love it. It's great. And it's really, too, because everyone sees Maurice as the scary character. And, like, everyone – Caroline's, like, bubbly and light and chatty. And then, like, she mm-hmm. turns it all of a sudden. And, and Edward and Gabriel are both like, whoa. And yeah. Maurice is like, all right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love her and Maurice. Like, I, I secretly hope for a book. But, but we got so much of them in this book. Like, it seems like they could just – be married after like or get together after they this. could just get together but i want to see them be like i want to see them really like take the time by storm because when they're all like getting down to the business of figuring out yes. the secret that the duke has caroline's like oh i'm gonna go just like talk to my friends about this and that and maurice is like well this happened she's like no it didn't because if we remember correctly it's like and gabriel's like yeah. 
what have you been doing in London, sister? <laughs> yeah, she is able to kind of cir- circulate the the women of the ton and get that gossip. And she is a bit of a, she seems at surface level, you know, a bit flighty and gossipy, which, you know, Maurice, of course, doesn't like. But then it turns out she's actually really smart and all the things we've said. And mm-hmm. this book isn't about them. So <laughs> let's, let's It's not. Talk we about... need to focus on the others. Sorry. Yes. Sorry. They were just such a, such a, a rich side story that was mm-hmm. in there, and I didn't include it much in the synopsis, so we would be remiss not to mention it at all. Yes. All right. But our steaminess rating and encounter counter, I may have missed one. I'm sorry if I did, but there were at least five. I'll take it. I don't know. I didn't count. <laughs> I just was um, reading. <laughs> and it was like, it was pretty steamy. It was... I will say it was steamy, especially like the fever kiss right at the beginning. I was like, I know, it was oh, just God. I was like, oh, OK, <laughs> that's how we're starting it out. All right. I I will admit this one thing, though. There was one sex scene where I read it three times because I was trying to figure out what position they were in. And I like couldn't figure it out. And I was like, all right, I guess I need to like watch some gay porn or like read up on gay sex positions because. I don't know whose feet or where and what's going on, but regardless, it was still really steamy. I think this is a hot cup of tea. Yes, I would agree with that. I think it very much so is. Whew. All right. So feminist recap. Total supporter. Total right? supporter. I would. I can't imagine why it wouldn't be. I mean, we've got friends and family who are supportive of their loved ones. We've kind of got the like, you know, even the villagers that aren't asking questions because they care for the people Mm -hmm. that care for them. Yeah. And I think like overall, it's like we could probably bring out some more points that are like really specific. But I think overall, like super intersectional feminism, Mm -hmm. like really positive book. Really liked it. 100% agreed there. Speaking of really liked this book. What would be your final book rating? I think this is such a strong debut. It made me want to go read the second one. Mm-hmm. I was like, what if her second one just like, you know, like there were some weaknesses in this book. And so I thought, well, either her second one is going to kind of leave those behind mm-hmm. or her second one is maybe going to fall victim to some of them. Right. Mm-hmm. And I was really curious because I thought there was so much strength and potential and excitement and like greatness here. So I went to read the second book and like, it's my catnip. Like, I, I love it so much. It's age gap, grumpy sunshine, virgin, and then like a little – anyhow, it's just like – it's so great. Also, you should read that book as well. But I would give this book a nine. I think this book is strong enough to deserve a nine, even despite all my complaints about the plot. I think this is a great book. On Goodreads, I rated it five stars because it deserves, in my opinion, a strong rating for the prose and for the – the characterization and the dialogue and the potential. I think that's, it should be noticed. And so Mm -hmm. that's why I think that, yeah, this book is a nine for me. I think that's totally fair. I would get it an 8.5. Totally Um, fair. (laughs) I don't think it's a nine, but do I think it's a really good book? Do I think it's really strong? Did I thoroughly enjoy reading it? Did it sweep me away right at the get-go? Yes, it did all of those things. (laughs) Yay. Yeah, what a fun new author, new find, new read, new things. Yeah, new things to look at and discover, new series to, like, look forward to. Yes. Listeners, I really hope you read this book. It's totally 
a great read. And the second one is on sale right now. It might still be. It was on sale for 99 cents. And so I was like, well, I can't not. It was on sale for 99 cents earlier today, which is the Monday before this recording went out. So So check. You could get a real steal on a great book. (laughs) Well, we've made it to the end. So Kelsey, what are we reading next time? Next time, we are bringing it back to our favorite family, the Bridgertons, because we still have some epilogues to finish up. I know you guys thought we were done with it. We did all (laughs) our penny where you're like, okay, cool, we're moving on. No, we haven't moved on yet. There are still some epilogues to get through. So we will be heading over to Eloise's Mm -hmm. happily ever after numero dos. Yes. And if you'd like to find us on social media, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at T is and Tom and as in Nancy Strumpets, Facebook slash TN Strumpets, and YouTube by searching our name. And if you're listening to us on YouTube, right now is a great time to click that thumbs up and hit subscribe before you forget. And liking and commenting on our videos and subscribing to our channel is a really wonderful way to let us know that you like what we're doing. And if you'd like to know ahead of time what we're reading each month, subscribe to our email notifications via our website. If you subscribe, you'll be the first to know what we're reading each month. Plus, you'll get all sorts of extras, including exclusive content from each of the authors who join us on the podcast. Our website is romancepod.com, and there you can find episodes, more information about us, and other resources. So take a look. So... Before we sign off, I just want to remind our listeners, don't forget to vote for our next series. It's still open. We haven't fully announced a, a closure date, uh, okay. but <laughs> next few few weeks, sometime in July, we'll announce what we're doing next. But you can vote for our next series that we're going to be reading, either the Bedouin Saga yeah. by Mary Ballou or Maiden Lane by Elizabeth Hoyt. And you can find that at bit.ly slash strumpetseries. Very excited. I'm excited to know what we'll be reading soon. So thank you all so much for listening. Happy Pride. And join us next time as we read The Bridgerton's Happily Ever After, Eloise and Phillips' second epilogue. And may all your ever afters end happily. and Strumpets is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Maurice is furious because he believes that one of the founders is an accomplice for Sussex's sex, uh, Sussex's for Sussex Oh my gosh. I know, words for are Sussex's really hard today. one indiscretion. As maybe someone who had a little bit of borderline personality disorder. My dog is snoring really loud. <laughs> it's okay. I think at one point during quoting, I paused because I thought Daisy had like given a snort and I thought I was going to get barking at the tail end of it. So I paused because I was like, oh, is Daisy going to give me her sleepy whimpers?